And I talked to hospital leaders and they were talking about things like, you know, pizza lunches or wellness initiatives or meditation apps. It didn't quite, or more time off, it didn't quite square with the experience that I was hearing from nurses about the nightmares they were facing or the panic attacks. And as someone who had firsthand experience of what that felt like, I really thought there's a disconnect here. And so especially over the last six months, a lot of the articles that I've been writing have been about that disconnect between administration and what nurses and doctors and pharmacists are seeing in their line of work. It's so much more than just the colloquial use of the word burnout. It is, you know, there are other words that they might prefer. And I think the other piece of this is that when you use the word burnout, a lot of times clinicians feel like it centers it on themselves. Like I should have managed my wellness better, or if only I participated in more self-care. But it's not about that. If the system is broken and you're facing trauma from the institutional failings, then it's not your fault. And so they feel like they need a better term that encompasses all of that reality. Welcome to the Insightful Nurse Leader. This is a podcast by nurse leaders for nurse leaders. This show is focused on assisting leaders become effective managers and change facilitators. So whether you're a seasoned frontline leader, a budding charge nurse, an experienced manager or executive, you don't want to miss this. Hello and welcome to our 17th episode of the Insightful Nurse Leader. Today, I'm excited to announce our special guest and this none other than Beth Kutcher. She is the senior managing editor at LinkedIn News, and she's also the author of the Path to Recovery newsletter in LinkedIn. Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, we recently connected through LinkedIn. What attracted me to Beth's work is her publication or her article about burnout. But before we dive in, let's talk about how you got into this work and what motivates you to talk about healthcare? Sure. I've been covering healthcare my entire career, so about two decades now. But I come from a family of healthcare professionals. My dad was a doctor, a nephrologist. My sister is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Another sister works in health insurance. My husband is a physician. I was always the more creative one, but I found myself gravitating toward healthcare as a beat. And increasingly, especially over the last few years, I've really started to see healthcare for their human stories. So for example, I, I've written publicly about this as someone I've been diagnosed with PTSD. And I was around that time, I was also interviewing a lot of nurses who were saying that they also were experiencing PTSD on the job. And But when I talked to hospital leaders and they were talking about things like, you know, pizza lunches or wellness initiatives or meditation apps... It didn't quite, or more time off, it didn't quite square with the experience that I was hearing from nurses about the nightmares they were facing or the panic attacks. And as someone who had firsthand experience of what that felt like, I really thought there's a disconnect here. And so especially over the last six months, a lot of the articles that I've been writing have been about that disconnect between administration and what nurses and doctors and pharmacists are seeing in their line of work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very insightful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your work and supporting our clinicians. You know, I resonate so much with that. And, and we spoke about that initially when we first connected is that disconnect on how non-clinicians or decision makers in hospitals or executives, what have you, with their offering. Because for me, as someone who have worked in the system before, we have what we call the EAP or Employee Assistant Program. And, you know, they're, 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 you know that there's value in it. But then again, to your point, there is a huge gap between what 
clinicians are actually experiencing versus you know what is being offered and it's it's quite timely that we talk about this given to the fact that we just had a huge strike 15,000 nurses you know went on strike for what 3 days or something like that in in Minnesota and you know what's interesting to me is they're not striking because of wage but they want to have more autonomy over their work which i find very insightful those strikes are going to be They've been part of a national trend because we had hundreds of labor union contracts expiring at hospitals around the country. But we're also at this critical moment where we're feeling so much burnout, disenfranchisement, whatever word you want to use, trauma, uh, moral injury. And so nurses are saying this is an incredible opportunity for us because they have to renegotiate these contracts. Here's what we have on the table. And it's interesting that you point out that it's not just about wages, but it's about how do we actually address things like staffing, better patient care. I think at Kaiser, it was mental health therapists who were threatening to strike in California because of weights for patients. So nurses are actually taking on almost an advocacy role for the holes that are in the healthcare system these days. Mm -hmm. Agree, agree. So diving into our topic. So why do doctors and nurses hate the word burnout? Because it's the disconnect. Burnout is, is is one of those words that's thrown around colloquially in many offices, any office. I'm feeling burnt out. I'm tired. Couldn't mean you just worked, you know, a 60 hour week and you're just, you need to unwind a little bit. But in healthcare, it's more than just the colloquial use of the word burnout. It is that complex trauma. I mean, a lot of nurses who are on the front lines of COVID and doctors, and I, I don't want to forget the other allied health professionals as well, they felt like they were in a war zone. There are many articles where, you know, they said, We had these patients, they were dying. We didn't have treatments for them. We didn't have the right protection for ourselves. There were no beds. People were languishing in hallways or makeshift tents. The National Guard might have been called in and they felt like they were in a war zone. And so now they're dealing with the long tail of this and it hasn't really ebbed that much in many hospitals. And so they're seeing this. They don't know how to, it's so much more than just the colloquial use of the word burnout. It is And there are other words that they might prefer. And I think the other piece of this is that when you use the word burnout, a lot of times clinicians feel like it centers it on themselves. Like I should have managed my wellness better, or if only I participated in more self-care. But it's not about that. If the system is broken and you're facing trauma from the institutional failings, then it's not your fault. And so they feel like they need a better term that encompasses all of that reality. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. You know, recently I read this article that you published in involving uh, Dr. Russell Hallman, and he talked about the structural violence, and that was that was his term. And most organizations, you know, address the individual wellness and and all those other programs, but the reality is the things that it's outside of the clinician's control is the environment, and that's what we need to address. Basing on your interactions with your interviews and other clients, were there any recommendations that were tangible that hospitals could adapt? Well, one of the recommendations from Dr. Holman was this idea of we need to give business acumen to clinicians. So he was talking about masterclass type courses, you know, nine minutes in length. So just training. How do I approach the C-suite and speak in their language and bridging that gap? I think I think it's still TBD on 
what's actually going to be most effective. I think this is early days. I think there's a reckoning happening now because a lot of this is unsustainable. I have to actually have an interview coming out with the Oregon Health and Hospital Association talking about how hospitals are in danger. They're on the, the brink financially. And they're operating at huge losses. And so, and a lot of that is staffing and labor. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, if if they can't fill these roles and staff adequately, then more people are going to quit. And that's something that LinkedIn has shown in its data again and again. So the, the mm-hmm. power balance has tipped a little bit. How that shakes out, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion on that to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's true. You know, as a clinician or prior clinician myself, what's interesting is that burnout and, and staff shortages is not actually a new term for us or for me, at least. It's just been accelerated during the past couple years. And, and it's really interesting how it has really impacted healthcare at large. You know, that's it's funny you mentioned that uh, because I did an interview with a nurse researcher a week after I did that piece on why doctors and nurses hate the word burnout. And, you know, she was saying that there have been periods in history where there were staffing shortages. She points it to 2006, for example. But nurses were still loved being nurses. You know, they talked about the love of the job, the satisfaction they felt. Now nurses are just, they're ready to walk away. They're ready to do something else. Um, We've seen, I think it was it was more than 45% of nurses made a career transition in 2021 compared to 2019. And when we say career transition, mm-hmm. this is LinkedIn data showing people that changed mm-hmm. jobs entirely. So not just went from one hospital to a next, but said, okay, I was a nurse and now I'm going to be something completely different. Maybe, you know, join a digital health company and be, you know, director of clinical operations or something like that. And this is really... I won't say it's the first time in history we don't have that longitudinal data, but this seems to be a unique time in history where more nurses are willing to walk away from nursing, which we haven't seen in past years that, you know, researchers have said that they've been surveying nurses, you know, every few years. And this has really shown a huge drop off in job satisfaction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think going back to the term, truly, it's deeper than burnout. I think people have reached their limit of I am no longer tolerating this and I'm done. Correct. Absolutely. So based on LinkedIn data, uh, LinkedIn news data, the role that saw the most exit during the pandemic are pharmacists. And this is interesting to me being a nurse because I thought, well, this limited view (laughs) is I thought there were nurses, right? Uh, But it's interesting to me to find out that there's actually at 47.3% followed by nurses at 46.7%. Can you share more background about this and why do you think pharmacists have this much people resigning? I think it comes back to the autonomy piece that we were talking about earlier. I think pharmacists also felt like they were cogs in a large wheel, except instead of hospital systems, a lot of that churn was happening on the retail pharmacy side. So they were trained to do one job. The tipping point seemed to come when the COVID vaccines were rolled out because now they had to deal with all their usual duties, plus also this huge historic vaccination campaign that was when, where they were on the front lines. And it was just, you know, they didn't have enough, again, they didn't have enough staff. And so the people who remained felt flooded with patients. They were, you know, wearing multiple hats. I interviewed one pharmacist who said that at her local pharmacy, she saw fewer people working in the pharmacy section. than when she'd go into her local coffee shop and order breakfast, <laughs> there were more people <laughs> serving coffee and taking orders in, at the pharmacy when you might need the council patients, where you're dealing right. with insurance issues, supply chain issues. So you had a lot more, you had a lot 
get angrier patients or customers who were coming to the pharmacy. And they also felt that that level of burnout of we just can't keep up with the demand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Do you think with a lot of focus right now, and we see trends right now in healthcare, right, that there's a trend of retail healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a trend of online pharmacy, PBMs trying to, you know, partnering to lower costs. Do you think there is a role for tech companies with this impact in pharmacy? That is the, the great debate <laughs> that's going yeah. on right now is how can tech solve this? Can tech solve this issue? And who's going to do it well? The great debate seems to be a lot of this happens in its silo where clinicians are kind of brought on at the end and for execution, whereas a lot of clinicians feel like they need to be in the room from the onset because the tech industry doesn't understand the healthcare workflows. It's a, it's a very, very different culture. And the ones that are going to do well are the ones where the two are married at the top from the beginning. And you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how it how it shakes out. There's a lot of questions ethically about whether healthcare technology is going to close the gap in disparities of care and increase equity, or whether the opposite is going to be true. Are they going after younger, healthier people who are already pretty tech savvy? What does it mean for people who aren't as tech savvy? Uh, is squeezing costs out of healthcare is that really the right way to go? There's plenty of room for innovation. The truism in healthcare is that. It's clunky and outdated, especially the consumer facing piece, but it's also a system that is by nature a, a system of human touch and interaction. Yeah, it's, a, it's another really interesting space to watch. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you said that because, you know, even down to my level, back when, you know, I work in organizations where they're integrating or changing an electronic medical record system. Some of the initiatives at the top level do not necessarily involve a clinician. So in the implementation phase, the, <laughs> there's a lot of questions and frustration on the clinician side of things and how it impacts their work because there's a lot of things that are either redundant or doesn't make sense from a clinician standpoint, which goes back to your point on, you know, it has to be married at the top and integrating those key players as well. Artificial intelligence is another really good example where, you know, tech likes to do things in stealth mode and they consider their algorithms to be proprietary, whereas the medical profession does everything open and, and the nursing profession does everything open to peer review. You know, they, everything needs to be rigorously studied. Well, the two of those goals are at odds. And so mm -hmm. clinicians tell me they don't know when they're given a clinical decision support piece of software, they don't know if it's garbage in, garbage out, as the saying goes, or, you know, or, or what they're looking at because it can't be peer reviewed. And my husband is a sleep medicine doctor, talks about this a lot with all these new gadgets that claim to track your sleep, these consumer grade technologies. He doesn't, you know, patients will come to him and say, oh, you know, this is saying that I only spent this much time in deep sleep or this much time in REM sleep. But he says, I don't know how these large companies, whether it's Apple Fit, but how they define what inputs they're looking at to define what is REM sleep, what is deep sleep, how do they, what are they looking at? So he doesn't know how that tracks against his medical grade, you know, sleep center devices. And I think these, so there are tons, so when you talk about technology, there's tons of different ways to flight devices. There's the healthcare delivery piece. There's the quantified self piece. Um, there's a clinical decision support piece. Each of those, I think, has its unique challenges. And so, you know, if you take like Amazon buying one medical, that's just one piece of a much larger pie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. 
going back to the profession itself, viewing this from LinkedIn side, do you see any specific trend where clinicians are transitioning to? Most in our data, which I think you're, you're referring to with the job transitions, the plurality of them, the bulk of them, 45% stayed within the healthcare industry. So not quite the majority, but certainly the largest group. A lot of the people that changed jobs, there was a little bit of noise in that data because some people went into retail, which is retail pharmacy, and because pharmacists made the most job changes. But I would say, I think it's safe to say that people want to continue what they know. They trained in one field. And for the people that left, not because of burnout, but because it was just the right time in their careers, they saw a unique opportunity to make healthcare better. So they saw all these new entrants, the tech companies circling, and they thought, I can do this too. Or they were saying, I want to find greater meaning in my career, and maybe I can make a greater difference if I go into management versus bedside. So I think you're seeing a lot of people just want to take more ownership of their role in the healthcare industry. How do I have impact? I think I, I interviewed a Black physician who were saying that, you know, she, what she's heard from people is in the community is that, you know, people of color were hit disproportionately with COVID. And, you know, they watched many of their loved ones die in, while they were on the front lines taking care of them. And I think in those communities, there wasn't quite that same disconnect of I'm on the front lines and here are the patients. And it's, it was, so it was very meaningful. How do I actually get involved in public health, for example, or maybe entrepreneurship? And so I think, I think there's a, there's a fair amount of altruism. It's not just, you know, I'm throwing in the towel and I quit. And I don't mean to just offer that as the only narrative of what's going on, because I think it's, it's very layered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. Have you seen or encountered a recommendation from your interaction with a few clients regarding what does real autonomy, integrating that in, in healthcare? Because we're talking about looking at the structure of how we run healthcare organizations. Have you encountered a great recommendation that is actually easy to implement or rather feasible to implement to, to optimize autonomy for the frontline so we can retain more nurses? It's a very good question. And I'm not sure I'm the right person who has the answer to that. I think you'll hear you'll hear a lot of different things. Um, some people will say, like I said before, it's, it's education, it's leadership training. Some people might say you should start a business or have a side hustle. I think uh, the American Nurses Association is really um, interested in this topic of, of nurse innovation and, and highlighting that. I know that whenever I write about clinicians getting involved in digital health or entrepreneurship, it always gets a really good high level of engagement. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if we have the, the data yet to say what, mm -hmm. what the tipping point is. I think we're mm -hmm. just beginning. I agree. So, you know, even for me, as someone who publishes my podcast episodes on LinkedIn, I also see quite a few people in their journey of consultancy and or going to a, a different avenue to publish their work or to create a content or create a video to be a thought leader in that regard. For those leaders or for those nurses or healthcare professionals who are venturing in that route, do you have any recommendations or what recommendations do you have in order to build a better presence on the LinkedIn platform? I think being active and vocal in the healthcare community that we built on LinkedIn is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. I think so with the nurses strikes. So I'm going to tie the question you asked before that to another question you asked at the beginning. 
And there's a lot of discussion on LinkedIn and whether that sort of collective bargaining is going to filter down to positions, for example. So how do we get together and add our clout? Because, you know, we're a million doctors in the U.S. and four million nurses. And how do we how do we show that? And we're essential, both those groups and all the allied health professionals are essential to the healthcare system. And yet they're treated like cogs in a wheel. So how do you bring that agency back? I think a lot of those closed door discussions are happening between peers. I mean, that's how it starts. I mean, that's how these movements start. Social media can be very powerful in what identifying the problems, figuring out solutions. I'm just one person who's connecting all these others. That's what I see my role. So you're asking me, well, what can we do? I'm not sure, but I like to believe that LinkedIn is providing the platform to have these conversations. And what I always say that's unique about LinkedIn compared to other social media platforms, and, and here's my plug because I work here, but mm. you know, it, it's really the 360 of the healthcare industry. I mean, I know mm. that there are other groups, professional associations, for example, where clinicians kind of get together with people who have the same training and, and licensure. And certainly there's, there's something to be said about that, but being able to actually speak to people who are on the administrative side, people who are in insurance, people who different different parts of the profession. Uh, I often like to say it's kind of like the how we work together beat because it's all these different stakeholders who are all trying to make healthcare better. And there is that altruism piece. That's why people get into healthcare. And this is a place for them to, to get together and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Do you have any advice on how to create better and more meaningful engagement on LinkedIn? Sure. We always say right to start a conversation. So um, people really want to talk about these issues, debate them. And I think the best way is to post something that people actually, you know, start with a question. What do you want people to weigh in on? And that will really get people talking. We have a poll feature. You could do that. But also engage with other people. So it shouldn't just, it should be bi-directional. If you see something that's of interest to you, comment. Um, if you think it's a be of interest to somebody else, at mention them. Because LinkedIn is one of those places where you get out of it what you put in. Totally agree. Well, I'm definitely enjoying my time on LinkedIn and definitely getting a lot of thoughtful conversations there. And um, some of them are actually your publications. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And subscribe to my newsletter. It's a, it's a great <laughs> way to see what people are talking about. Oh, speaking of your newsletter, can you talk more about the path to recovery? Sure. So the sort of the thinking behind it is the COVID pandemic didn't create a lot of the issues that we are talking about, whether it's staffing challenges or getting tech involved in healthcare, but it was an accelerant and it fundamentally upended how clinicians see their relationship with this system that employs them, that they work for. Huge numbers of clinicians are disenfranchised. How do, how do we right this ship? You know, how do we get back on our feet, whatever analogy you want to use? And it's a place to talk about what I think of as the great debates in healthcare these days, whether it's talking about, you know, why the word burnout is inadequate and what could be better. It could also be something like physician assistants changing their name to physician associates. I mean, I was surprised at first, although I'm, I'm less and less surprised every time I write about it, just how strongly people feel about different groups practicing within the scope of their licensure, I think, because that's one of the creative solutions people are talking about. Well, maybe, you know, we'll have nurses do more, you know, give more authority to this group or that group. And so now healthcare creates these artificial turf wars. The future of medical education um, or nursing education, uh, I wrote about some of the creative ways Maryland hospitals are training young nurses these days or, or up-and-coming nurses. Got, again, hundreds of comments of people talking about that because it's so challenging to find clinical placements these days of a huge nursing and sector shortage. 
So it's I, I see it as the a place to talk about how we get to a point where healthcare is there's joy in working in healthcare again. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this time. Beth, how can our listeners connect with you? I'm always on LinkedIn, so they can feel free to email me. They can at mention me in posts, subscribe to my newsletter, comment. Those are the best ways to get in front of me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. Absolutely. And, uh, thank look you. look forward to reading more about your uh, newsletter. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. To view the complete show notes and all the links mentioned in today's episode, visit milesperillaconsulting.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast so you can receive the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're enjoying this show, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcast. Thank you again for joining me. This is your host, Miles Perilla, and you're listening to The Insightful Nurse Leader. I'll see you next time.